these podcasts are being released in conjunction with the 5th National Climate Assessment. They feature conversations among NCA authors and staff about the report, the science behind the report, and the participants' experiences and perspectives. They do not represent official positions of the United States government. Enjoy! Welcome to the companion podcast of the 5th National Climate Assessment. My name is Allison Crimmins, and I'm the director of the 5th National Climate Assessment, the United States government's premier report on climate change, its impacts, and how we are responding. If you've been following our episodes in order so far, you know we started out by first telling you a little bit about the National Climate Assessment itself. From there, we heard from several authors about the things people are already doing to mitigate or adapt to climate change. And we heard from authors in different parts of the country about the different ways that people are already experiencing climate change. In this episode, we're gonna talk to a series of authors from the fifth National Climate Assessment, all of whom are experts in climate change risk. Now, what do I mean by climate change risk? Risk generally is of course a threat and namely it's a threat to things we care about. So when I'm talking about climate risk, I'm talking about threats to our lives, our health, our safety. I'm talking about threats to our environment, our homes and schools, economic and social well-being, to our culture and heritage, or really just anything we value. Risk is a threat that could be realized soon in the near term or later in the future. Scientists know that climate change poses risks to these things we care about because of three key sources of evidence. First is just plain and simple physics and a really good understanding of how Earth's systems work. The second source of evidence about climate change comes from historical records, whether that's from paleo studies of our climate thousands and millions of years ago, or from observed indicators of climate change that we see around us today. And our third source of knowledge about climate change risks comes from climate models. Now, unfortunately, climate models cannot tell us exactly what will happen when and where in the future. Instead, they use scenarios or plausible descriptions of how conditions might develop over time. For example, scenarios can describe things like how much more greenhouse gases will humans emit? How do we expect populations to grow or move? How will we use land for agriculture or for cities or for forests? Those scenarios are fed into climate models and the information that comes out is neither a forecast nor a prediction. Instead, it's referred to as a projection because it is conditional on the inputs you put into the model. In other words, the models are not saying this is what is going to happen. They're saying, if we consider this one specific scenario for how much greenhouse gases people will emit or how populations will grow or how we will use land for agriculture or forestry, if we consider this one specific scenario, here's a range of plausible futures we might expect. And that conditional part is really important because it means that when or if we reach a particular global warming level, say, 1.5 or 2 or 3 degrees centigrade, that climate outcome is dependent on the choices we make today. In other words, scenarios and climate model projections can inform our decisions today about the future and the potential implications of the choices we're making by helping us understand what is at risk. Because we want the National Climate Assessment to be useful and usable, we want it to be a resource to help inform decisions, our authors are encouraged to write using what we call a risk-based framework. And that means our authors start out by first identifying what is important. What do people in the United States care about? What do they value? And then talk about how those things that people in the United States value are being put at risk by climate change. Now, we can't fit all the things that are at risk into one podcast episode, but we'll give you several examples of how climate change is putting the things we all value most at risk. Coming up. 
I'm really struck by how many different chapters of NCA5 we probably touched on in this conversation. Right. Well, I mean, you know, everybody eats food, so it's going to touch everybody. NCA5 authors Virginia Jin and Emily Elias joined for a discussion on the impacts of climate change on safe and reliable water, food, and agriculture. In our first segment, we are talking to two of our NCA5 authors who are experts in the food, water, energy nexus. Our first guest is Virginia Jin, who is the research leader of the Agroecosystem Management Research Unit for USDA's Agricultural Research Service. Her work in soil science explores soil health and soil greenhouse gas responses to agricultural management, as well as how those practices can be used to adapt to climate changes. And she is an author on the Agriculture, Food Systems, and Rural Communities chapter of NCA5. Welcome, Virginia. Hi. And we are also joined by Emily Elias, who is the director of the USDA Southwest Climate Hub with headquarters in Las Cruces, New Mexico. She has worked for more than 25 years at the interface of water scarcity, water quality, agricultural production, and natural resources with the goal of supporting resilient landscapes and communities. And Emily is the coordinating lead author of the Southwest chapter of NCA5. So glad to have you, Emily. Thanks, Allison, for the invitation. All right, since we are talking about water in this segment, I'd like to start off by reading a few sentences from the NCA5 water chapter. Alaska and northern and eastern regions of the U.S. are seen and expect to see more precipitation on average while the Caribbean, Hawaii, and southwestern regions of the U.S. are seen and expect to see less precipitation. Heavier rainfall events are expected to increase across the nation, and warming will increase evaporation and plant water use, where moisture is not a limiting factor. Groundwater supplies are also threatened by warming temperatures that are expected to increase demand. Snow cover will decrease and melt earlier, Increasing aridity, declining groundwater levels, declining snow cover, and drought threaten surface water supplies. I feel like those few sentences pack a lot of punch, lots of different ways to talk about water. Can you tell me a bit more about how the changes we're seeing are affecting water availability for agriculture in regions across the United States? So, for example, in the northeastern part of the country, we've seen increases in spring and fall precipitation. But in some northern areas, we've also seen a decrease in summer rainfall. So a lot of producers in the east are now installing irrigation equipment because conditions are drier in the months when people are trying to grow crops. At the same time in the northeast, we're seeing more total rainfall each year and an increase in the intensity of the rain. So these wet conditions during these critical times for planting and harvesting can be a big challenge for producers because they really just make it difficult to work in the fields and plant or harvest. But if we move on to the Western United States, we've seen unprecedented drought over the past few decades, and that is leading to the first ever shortage declaration on the Colorado River in 2021. So some people only irrigated their highest value crops if they were able to get some water and some were not able to irrigate at all. And of course, in the West, we have to irrigate to grow crops for the most part. Emily, I think it's really interesting that you emphasize the effect of these changes in water availability on the crops. We also see these changes occurring and these challenges that our ranchers are having to deal with when it comes to animal and livestock production. Certainly any shortages in water that are impacting forage availability and feed availability, those are also impacting our animal production systems. And we think about all those cattle that are standing out in these hot pastures and things like that. So certainly decreasing in water and higher temperatures are having some serious impacts on animal well-being and just their overall health. So when we have those extreme events, certainly those animals are at much higher risk of succumbing to heat. And all of those aspects are also impacting the, the bottom line for our producers. We've kind of talked about crops. We've talked about livestock. I feel like what might be missing in this is discussion of impacts on farmers themselves. Can you speak a little bit more to those sorts of impacts to the people on the ground? 
when we think about climate change impacts and, and agricultural systems, I think our knee-jerk reaction is to think about the commodities that we're producing. But really, the people who are working to support those systems, both the farmers as well as the farm workers, they're also being impacted by climate changes. This extreme heat, conditions that change whether or not it's drivable out on the ground, that changes operations of when management operations are occurring in the field. Certainly, there's a lot more safety issues for farm workers who are out there working hard to produce food for the nation and the world to consume. We also have to consider how climate change is impacting our indigenous communities and folks where, you know, they're really depending on the climate to determine uh, when they're going out and gathering their foods and the seasonality of how they forage and obtain food from wildlands is occurring. I just like to add a bit about extreme heat and heat waves being especially problematic for outdoor workers. And many people working in agriculture work outdoors. And so especially there's some compounding impacts here as well, thinking about the California wildfires and people, outdoor workers being impacted by the smoke from the wildfires. So there are many layers of challenge when it comes to extreme heat and drought and wildfire and protecting the people that are doing the hard work of providing our food. What about other impacts of climate change beyond extreme heat or, or other extremes. I'm thinking in particular about pests and vector-borne diseases and how those might be affecting crops and livestock, but also, again, the farmers and rural communities where we're growing our food. That's definitely a concern. Biological processes are in a large part controlled by temperature and by water. So as we see temperatures changing, as we see water availability changing, those are all going to have an impact on how pest cycles are occurring, how crops are susceptible to pathogens. And we also see changes in, say, winter kill. The fact that we're not having cold snaps anymore that are really getting rid of some of these diseases or getting rid of some of these pests over the cold season to kind of reset the clock for the next growing season. This is also changing. And so we see these greater pest pressures, greater disease pressures. Not only does that have a huge impact on the crop and the cost of maintaining and growing that crop, it could also have a severe impact on human beings. I'd love to hear some specific examples, if you have any, in your regions. So in 2011, uh, the Missouri River flooded. And it really impacted a huge portion of the heartland. What happened in eastern Nebraska frequently was not only was farmland completely inundated, grazing animals killed, and other flood-related disaster, what we found was that the Missouri River was actually depositing huge amounts of sand onto fields that were not sandy. They may have been close to the river and they may have had some riverine type uh, soils on them, but just the movement of all that water and the sediment and the, and the sand in that water was fundamentally changing the way that these crop fields and pastures functioned because it changed the soil entirely. And so what do we tell a farmer? All of a sudden, there's tons and tons of sand that got dumped on their field. That is not a field that historically they know how to farm and know how to manage. It is a different ball game. And so there were lots of different interventions and farmers got so creative and so innovative on how they were looking at these impacted fields once the floodwaters receded to say, you know, what are other ways that we can adapt to this disaster and still have these be productive working lands for their farming enterprises. And another example relates to high temperatures, which can cause behavioral impacts to livestock, such as increased water and reduced food intake. And high temperatures can also cause physiological impacts to livestock, such as reduced reproductivity or reproductive efficiency, changes to respiration and heart rate and milk production. And these impacts can be worse during humid conditions, and producers often look 
to the heat stress index to inform these management decisions. An example of how heat stress really impacted livestock production was in 2000. It led to $1.7 billion in losses across the U.S. livestock industry. And so as we think about projected increases in maximum temperatures and heat waves, we think that this will lead to future livestock stress and producers can mitigate some of these impacts by providing more shade, working during the cooler times of day, and even providing climate controlled buildings, especially if we rely on solar. So we're also thinking about climate mitigation as well as adaptation at the same time. I'd like to dig it a little bit further into some of those innovative approaches that Virginia mentioned and some of those solutions you've been talking about, Emily. Thinking about the climate impacts that we're projected to face, what are other examples of mitigation and adaptation actions that you've seen on the ground? Oh, there's so many. There are so many examples of adaptation in agriculture. Agriculture is inherently adaptive, but a good example might be using different crops, planting at different times, So using different planting and harvest dates, using different cultivars that might be more adapted to hotter conditions or drier conditions. One example that I like is people using solar and solar farms or agrovoltaics as an example that seems to be really up and coming, or even solar pumps. One of the early examples when we were talking about how climate change impacts indigenous peoples It reminded me of how global warming has been thinning the sea ice. And so for indigenous communities in in Alaska, the timing and the change of when sea ice is thinning, it impacts how they hunt. And so finding prey and when to go out and get that prey is fundamentally shifting. Well, and there's another story from Hawaii So taro is a very important crop to native cultures of Hawaii, and it's grown along the coast. And so sea level rise is a big challenge for cultivation of taro crops. And so there are a lot of people investigating how to continue to produce this really important cultural crop that actually relates to their creation myth. So there's a lot of focus on how to continue to grow this crop despite increasing sea level. I'm really struck by how many different chapters of NCA5 we've probably touched on in this conversation. Right. Well, I mean, you know, everybody eats food. Yeah. So it's going to touch everybody. Any last takeaways that you want to leave our our readers with or our, our listeners and our readers? I guess I would echo what Emily said earlier, which is agriculture is inherently adaptive. We've, because we have been here for tens, hundreds of thousands of years and eating food that whole time, our agriculture has had to adapt and evolve with us. And I see that continuing to occur. We just have a lot more tools and technology now to help that along. The advent of much more remote sensing, a lot of satellite sensing or aerial imagery to help us reduce water and fertilizer use, really targeting the use of of those resources right when the crop needs it so that we can reduce waste and reduce all this nitrogen and reactive phosphorus that's in the environment that's causing other environmental issues. And we can't forget artificial intelligence and machine learning. There are more and more technological tools that are becoming available to us that we can really use as we're adapting to climate changes and really any other challenges that we're facing in agriculture. It's a very exciting time to be involved in agriculture and watching how it changes. I would say we've been talking about some pretty scary changes in terms of changes in precipitation and heat extreme heat, extreme events such as hurricanes. And I want to emphasize that there are a lot of solutions out there and that we're looking towards operating in the solution space in terms of everything Virginia just mentioned and things people are doing at the local level in all sorts of different ways. And so while the changes look daunting, There are many things that many people are doing and can still be done to respond to these changes. Coming up, 
I think the most important thing that I want readers to be aware of when they come across the built environment chapter is that the built environment, yes, it's about the physical things that underpin how we work, live, and play, but it's also about the people. NCA5 author Eric Chu breaks down why infrastructure is one of the most important things to society that is at risk after the break. Our next segment is talking about the risks of climate change on infrastructure and critical services. And we're joined by Eric Chu, who is the assistant professor with the Community and Regional Development Program and co-director of the Climate Adaptation Research Center at UC Davis. And Eric is also the chapter lead of our Built Environment chapter. Welcome, Eric. Hello, Allison. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I wondered if we could start uh, first with the, the title of your chapter, and if you could just tell us what you mean by built environment. Yes, built environment is one of those jargony terms that refers to the things, the physical material things that allow us to live, work, and play. It's the physical roads, the buildings, the green space, the pipes, the solar panels, the electricity transmission lines that we interact with day to day that allow us to live. What are some of the impacts of extreme weather events on our built infrastructure? The built infrastructure across this country has experienced a lot of underinvestment over the past couple years, couple decades. And all of us who live in towns and cities and suburbs across the country know that our roads have potholes. We have buildings that are falling apart, bridges that are falling apart. And so when climate change comes, sea level rise, extreme precipitation, extreme heat, our infrastructure is quite susceptible to those kinds of impacts. So for example, sea level rise, your coastal buildings and infrastructure and roads start to become inundated by seawater. They become eroded. Some of the foundations get eroded as well because it's salt water that adds to the kinds of erosions and it just crumbles much quicker than the intended lifespan of the infrastructure itself. For example, when buildings and roads, pavements experience extreme heat, it expands. And then after the heat episode, it contracts. The more it expands, it contracts. And the more extreme that expansion and contraction happens, again, the roads and buildings start to crumble way before their intended lifespan. So we've got sort of an aging infrastructure problem as sort of the underlying situation, but some of the damage we're seeing from climate change is acting on top of that and exacerbating those instances. So it's a two-pronged thing. Climate change is clearly adding additional stressors on our infrastructure systems that they're not designed to handle. And at the same time, our infrastructure systems are degrading because of a long-term lack of investment, maintenance, and upkeep. And so across time, an infrastructure system's ability to withstand and cope with additional stressors decrease. And we talk in the report quite a bit about cascading impacts. Can you, can you speak to that and maybe give us an example of what that means? So a good example of a cascading effect on, on the built environment is, so you have uh, wildfires, but fires also produce smoke. And so they degrade air quality. So that's a second thing that happens. So then you have cascading impacts on the infrastructure because folks are stuck inside. And when you're inside and it's really hot, you turn on the AC. The AC creates additional air pollution and also traps more heat because you're generating power. And so cities and towns become even hotter. Air pollution plus heat is not a great combination because it creates a lot of breathing issues, especially for those who are susceptible to that. Thinking about where we invest and, and where we build, what are some of the projected impacts of climate change that we need to keep in mind? Some immediate things are sea level rise, really affecting the coastal infrastructure that we have. Um, we have a lot of expensive assets on the coast, ports, airports, roads and highways, housing in the past in this country have built a lot of our important cities and infrastructure along coasts because these were important trade routes. 
and people needed to commute into these centers of employment. And so we've built a lot of really expensive stuff along coastlines. If there's one thing you want people to walk away with, you know, a takeaway from your chapter, what would it be? I think the most important thing that I want readers to be aware of when they come across the built environment chapter is that the built environment, yes, it's about the physical things that underpin how we work, live, and play, but it's also about the people. The people manage, run, maintain our infrastructure networks. People benefit or not from those services that the infrastructure provides. And so we've made a huge effort to talk about residents, communities, who interface and use and benefit from this infrastructure. And it's the communities and the people that stand to gain or lose when infrastructures are not managed well, when infrastructure collapses because of climate change or infrastructure degrades to a point where it doesn't even work anymore to serve the people. Coming up. Personally, I have three kids and I see this reflected in conversations with them. There's just this, the eco-anxiety is the term, but I sort of see it as this jadedness that I see in my kids when they look at their future and feel like it's it's got this cloud hanging over it. Keeping people healthy in a changing climate is a critical challenge, and NCA5 authors Casey Ernst and Julie Maldonado join after the break to discuss the need and the challenges of focusing on human health in the face of a changing climate. Our next segment is to talk about climate change and the impacts on human health, and I'm excited to have two authors from the Human Health chapter join me today. The first person we'll talk to is Casey Ernst, who's a professor and department chair at University of Arizona College of Public Health. And she is an author on the health chapter and also on the COVID-19 focus feature. Our second guest is Julie Maldonado. She is the Associate Director of Research at Livelihoods Knowledge Exchange Network, or LIKE-IT, and an author on the health chapter, as well as a longtime participant in previous national climate assessments. Welcome, Casey, and welcome, Julie. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Allison. I want to start our conversation today by talking about heat. It is very hot outside right now. We've also seen breaking temperature records across the country lately, the hottest June on record, the hottest July on record. And of course, heat is one of the most direct ways that climate change is harming human health. How does heat affect human health and who is most at risk? Yeah, there's a myriad of ways in which heat can influence health. And, you know, of course, the most direct way is through things like heat exhaustion, heat stroke, when you've just been outside too long and exposed for a longer duration than your body can handle. But there's other ways that heat can affect your health as well. So there's, of course, issues with people who have heart disease. There's a number of ways that that heat can really affect the body. And Julia, who are some of the people that are most at risk from extreme heat? If we think about the experiences that people have had, for example, this summer across the United States, you can't really separate those experiences of extreme heat without separating them from other experiences such as energy justice. In terms of the ability to not just, you know, survive in these circumstances, but to also thrive, we have to think about, you know, who has access to ways to protect themselves and their families. And so if you think about oh, oftentimes you see, you know, one of the first alerts, if there's an extreme heat event, it's okay, get yourself to a cooling center. If the power is off, if you don't have air conditioning, if you don't have safe shelter, but who actually has access to a cooling center, who has a way to get there, and who can be assured that they are actually safe when they're there, right? So we can imagine the population groups that aren't necessarily going to do that because there's actually a risk of being even more unsafe in certain circumstances. In case we saw some of that during the COVID-19 pandemic too, right? This overlapping of climate stressors and hazards like extreme heat and, and hurricanes, but also, you know, non-climate stressors like COVID-19 might make it harder for disaster response or might make people not want to go to shelters. Can you talk a little bit more about the overlapping or compounding climate impacts on human health? 
Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think that's that's one of the things that we we talk a bit about in that COVID-19 focus box is that when you have extreme heat and you compound that with a pandemic and now you have maybe even a, a hurricane that makes it not just that there's you know not enough cooling centers or people don't know about them, but now people are afraid to go because there's this other risk layer on top. If they go to a cooling center, now they're exposed to other individuals. People who may have low wealth may also be those who are disabled or who are more vulnerable to an infectious disease like COVID. And so they have even more reason to want to be um, protecting themselves from, from these infectious diseases. I mean, there's a lot of sort of compounding disasters that occurred throughout the pandemic. You can think about the wildfires that were occurring and that exposure to particulate matter um, also jeopardizing your health even greater when you have COVID-19, a respiratory infection, and now you have this pollutant that's also harming your lung tissue at the same time. And there's been research that's shown that that exposure exacerbates the severity of, of a COVID-19 infection. So... I think as we face these disasters, it's really important to be thinking about how they sort of are interacting and overlapping and to look at it in a way that's more holistic. Can you expand a little bit on some of the unique risks that those communities are facing and and maybe how those intersecting um, identities can lead to health impacts from climate change? Yeah, it's a really important. And I think has been somewhat overlooked in the conversation is that intersexual and gender minorities, that's one aspect of who they are. And certainly they may also be a minority in terms of their race, ethnicity. They may have low wealth. They are also people who are going to be working at the front line of response. If you go back to something like this cooling center, if you're living in a community where there is discrimination or stigma against you as a sexual or gender minority, you may not feel comfortable going into a public cooling center. Some of these shelters and temporary housing places may have certain rules in terms of how they define a family unit and who they're going to put in a family unit together. And if you don't fit that definition, you may not be able to access those resources as well. So much of what you shared too, it relates directly back to where we started as well as to what options are available to people, you know, when these events occur so that they can feel safe, so they can feel secure for their whole family. Can you talk about some of the findings that your author team came to when when looking into the impacts of climate change on the mental health of young people in the U.S. Personally, I have three kids and I see this reflected in conversations with them. There's just this ever-present, I don't know if you would call it, I guess, it, you know, the eco-anxiety is the term, but I sort of see it as this just sort of almost jadedness that I see in my kids when they look at their future and feel like it's it's got this cloud hanging over it. The fact that they have this feeling is is real. It's grounded in reality, right? So they do experience right now more heat waves, you know, two to five times more heat waves over their lifetimes, doubling or tripling of droughts and wildfires and cyclones. So really, they will see more of these disasters than we have in the past. And so there is this reality to it. So it's hard to talk to your kids. At the same time, they're also leading the charge on climate action, which is really heartening to see. That's the positive side, right? They do see the reality and they aren't just sort of apathetic about it. They are embracing the challenge and they are really leading the way. Coming up. The impact of climate change on the U.S. economy is going to be extensive. It already is extensive. It's incredibly intricate and complicated. NCA5 Economics Chapter Lead Author Simon Greenhill joins us to discuss the critical importance of understanding climate-related economics. One of the new chapters in NCA5 that was not in the previous assessment is a chapter on economics. And so I'm really excited to have Simon Greenhill here with us today. He's a PhD candidate in agricultural and resource economics at UC Berkeley. 
and the chapter lead for our new economics chapter. Welcome, Simon. Thanks, Allison. Yeah, super exciting to, to be here. It's great to have you. So I want to start off talking a little bit about how economics has progressed in the recent national climate assessments. There were economic impacts that were featured in NCA4, but this is the first time you've had a standalone chapter on economics. Can you talk a little bit about how that came about and why it's such an important topic to include in a climate assessment? Yeah, so one of the places that economics appeared the most in NCA4 was in the mitigation chapter. And I think the reason that economics showed up a lot in the mitigation chapter was that the mitigation chapter sort of reported a lot of economic damage estimates that I think can help sort of provide a why for mitigation, like answer the question, why should we try to mitigate emissions or try to avoid some of the worst possible parts of climate change. But really, those are kind of a precursor to actually talking about mitigation, right? Like how we would actually mitigate our emissions. And for some people, it might be the case that physical or ecological threats coming from climate change are already more than enough reason to motivate doing something about it. But I think when we add on the sort of economic impacts, the impacts that are going to happen to our economy, to our health, to our well-being, I think climate change becomes really hard to ignore really for anyone. I think that that sort of motivated a need for a whole chapter talking about these issues certainly talking about economic impacts and then also talking about other economic aspects of climate change. So tell me more about the new economics chapter in NCA5. What's different about it compared to how economics was covered in the mitigation chapter in NCA4? Number one, there's a lot more real estate for economics to be discussed, right? So we can talk in more detail about different kinds of impacts we can also talk about things like the social cost of carbon or uncertainty, which are important sort of economic ideas and concepts that there certainly was not room for in the previous iteration of the NCA. And I think overall, the chapter kind of becomes a hub for economics within the assessment. And so it provides a lot of content and explanations that then other chapters can refer to. I think we were fairly successful in that, in that my understanding is most of the regional chapters point to somewhere in the economics chapter, as well as many of the national chapters sort of cross-reference our chapters somewhere. You mentioned social cost of carbon. And so I've got to ask you to define that a little bit for our audience. And I'd love you to also talk about why it's so relevant to policy. We know NCA5 is policy neutral assessment, but it's also very policy relevant. And this is one of those metrics I think is really important when we're thinking about planning climate action. So the social cost of carbon is an estimate of the cumulative global economic harm to society caused by emitting an additional ton of CO2. Globally, right? Globally. Yeah, exactly. And the way to think about that is when an additional ton of CO2 is released, that's going to cause a small additional amount of warming. And in turn, that warming is going to cause additional climate damages. And the social cost of carbon is basically a way of carefully enumerating and summing up those damages across different sectors of the economy, as well as across time. The reason that it's such a useful number for policymaking is that in the US and in many countries around the world, there's a requirement that policies pass a cost-benefit analysis. And the social cost of carbon basically gives you an estimate of the benefits of reducing emissions. The social cost of carbon was adopted by the U.S. government in 2010. By 2017, it had been used in something like 80 regulations and providing a trillion dollars in estimated benefits. And that was just by 2017. We've had another six or more years since then of the social cost of carbon being used. One thing that's worth mentioning, of course, is that because it's a single number, there's a lot of analytical and ethical decisions that need to be made in order to basically take this incredibly complex set of impacts coming from an incredibly complex problem that is climate change uh, and kind of distill it down to a single number. What sort of impacts get included in the social cost of carbon estimate and what might be left out? You will very often find a health impact often measured through mortality. So what is the impact of higher temperatures on mortality rates? You'll have 
energy often, you'll have agriculture and labor, people's work changing, whether that's their working hours or sort of the disutility they might experience from working in a very hot climate. And so there's there's a ton of these uh, different sort of sectors of impacts. You know, I mentioned a few, but there's several more. On the other hand, it is very hard to quantify some impacts that are very likely to happen due to climate change. For example, there's going to be loss of cultural heritage because of climate change. And it's really hard for us to put an exact dollar number on what the value of that cultural heritage is. Before we move to sort of your big takeaway, so this is the first time you've ever been involved in a national climate assessment, correct? Yeah, that's right. How was the experience for you? It was great. Yeah. I mean, I think I was amazed by how welcoming the other authors were of me sort of growing into a chapter lead role. It was really amazing for me as a younger researcher and not as established in the field to kind of be in the room with some of the people whose papers even helped motivate me to decide to go to grad school and to be sort of co-authors with them on this assessment. It's been an amazing experience and I've really been both humbled to have the opportunity to to work with them and also just really grateful that they took my input seriously and really welcomed my leadership on the chapter. Well, we're very lucky to have you. Sounds like you might recommend it to other graduate students for NCA6, huh? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that also a lot of people in my generation and kind of in younger generations of researchers, a lot of the reason, like so many researchers around the world, wanted to get into this work because we felt like it could have an impact on policy. A lot of us feel that if we wait till we have tenure, you know, that's a really long time to wait, especially given the urgency of problems like climate change. Yeah, we can't wait for people to get tenure to help take action on climate. Thanks, Simon. Any last big takeaways before we wrap up? The big takeaway of the chapter is that the impact of climate change on the U.S. economy is going to be extensive. It already is extensive. It's incredibly intricate and complicated. It's just super important to understand the impacts that climate change is going to have on the U.S. economy, understand those connections and the risks that arise from it, quantify them so we can use those numbers and things like the social cost of carbon, ultimately just raise a lot of these issues so that policymakers can make informed decisions and so that we can sort of design institutions and uh, set up policies that are going to be proactive and hopefully robust to climate change, in addition to using a lot of the information that we generate to perhaps motivate or at least understand where we might want to mitigate emissions as well. Coming up. It's a really important moment for the NCA and social sciences and social justice as well. Social science has become a critical input to science assessments. In our last segment, we're joined by Ariella Zeikerman and Adrian Hollis to discuss advances in climate-related social science and how NCA5 brings together physical and social science to build a clearer understanding of our world. Our next segment is on social systems and justice, and I'm really excited to have two of our expert authors joining me today to talk about this subject. I'm joined by Ariella Zykerben, who is a social scientist and program manager at NOAA and the agency chapter lead on the new social systems and justice chapter. Ariella, thanks for joining us today. I'm happy to be here. And I'm also joined by Adrian Hollis, the Vice President for Environmental Justice, Health, and Community Revitalization Program at the National Wildlife Federation and an author on NCA5's mitigation chapter. Welcome, Adrian. Thank you. Very happy to be here. I'm really glad you were both with us here. We've just finished an episode where we took something of a virtual road trip around the U.S. And we heard from the authors that I talked to a lot about the uneven or disproportionate impacts of climate change that people are experiencing all around the country. And in talking with some of our mitigation and adaptation experts as well, you can also hear people thinking about these subjects of social justice and equity, not just in the way that climate change is affecting people, but also in our response to climate change. So Ariella, I'll start with you. This is the first time we've ever had a chapter in the National Climate Assessment on Social Systems and Justice. 
Can you start off by talking about why it's so important that we have this chapter and why this topic? Why now? There's been a huge push over the last, I don't know, 20 years to include more social science and climate work. And the chapter itself is an underpinning for the rest of the NCA, really talking about what are the baseline theoretical advancements that social science have given us to understand both the drivers, the impacts, and the solutions for climate change, and then allowing the other chapters to pick up on that information and being able to give it more specific legs in terms of the regions that it's working in or the specific topics that it's working in. Adrian, do you consider yourself a social scientist? I didn't think of it when I was in academia, but as an environmental attorney and an environmental toxicologist, I work at the intersection of a number of these different issues. I look at how policy can address some of the disproportionate effects of, around health and around just environmental exposure. When people ask, how did you get to where you are? And I'm like, you create your job. You create where you think there are gaps. Then you jump in. And I think the NCA5 does a great job of giving you a number of different perspectives and types of ways you can I guess, weigh in in the climate justice, climate change arena. Adrian, I want to touch on something that Ariella mentioned about social systems and how social systems are what help us understand climate change, but also what drives climate change. Can you dig into that a little bit more and explain what that means for social systems to drive climate change and how different assumptions or different understandings of those drivers can lead to different conclusions about what we should be doing about it. First, I'll say how excited I am that this chapter exists. You know, NCA5 is phenomenal. And the fact that communities have been talking about things like culture and how it's affected by climate. And, and we have been pushing for information around how communities interact when it comes to things like relocation or migration or, or even mitigation. And we know about the historical practices of systemic environmental racism. And all of those things affect climate change because people who do the least when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions are the ones who are affected the most. And people don't think about that as a whole. And that's globally plus locally. So when we think about the impact of things like culture, Great example, Louisiana, community that is in the process of relocating away from the coast where all of their history is and, and all of their traditions and the impact of climate change on that. I think that's a perfect example of what we're talking about. And also, Ariel, I read your great article about social change, social systems, and it resonated because that is what people have been asking for, how interrelated things are. And that's what generally science has not looked at. Well, I'm glad you read our article. <laughs> it is exactly what you said. It's about complexity. And when we just focus on atmospheric sciences or anything that's very physical, we miss the questions of why do we care about climate change? For who do we care about climate change? And what are we going to do to impact climate change? These aren't theoretical concepts. They are lived experiences every single day by many communities in many ways. And there isn't one size all solution, just like there isn't one size all fit problem. And so, you know, it is about bringing together all of the sciences and what the social sciences and the justice chapter are doing are asking those really hard questions. How do things fit together? How are they different across the country? How are they different globally? And what can we do appropriately, respectfully, and communally to address them in the appropriate ways. Yeah, I like the fact that we acknowledge community science and traditional ecological knowledge and the importance of that historic knowledge and what people have done on their own to gather information. That's very important. Well, I want to pick up on that because this NCA made a real big attempt to think about how to include local and traditional knowledge and indigenous knowledge as a real data source. I mean, that in itself is kind of mind-blowing. We can see in such a big public national document how Western science and other sorts of sciences can be meshed together to give us a better understanding of what happens locally and why it's important. Any last big takeaways you want to leave our audience with? One of the things that the NCA5 really does for me is make the connection between people and policy and practice. 
I like the fact that we acknowledge and identify and discuss the disproportionality that we see in communities, that that's addressed in more than one chapter. It's sort of a vein that runs through the report. And I appreciate that. And I think that people who read this will appreciate that. And for some who haven't made that connection because they just haven't thought about how interconnected things are, I think it is impactful. Yeah, my takeaway is very similar to Adrian's, except it's more of a plea. As an environmental social scientist who's been working in climate change for a while, we're up against a lot of distrust and negativity. People don't think our sciences are empirical, but they are. And what I hope is that when you read the NCA and you see the way it is now integrated into most chapters and the way that we are trying to frame the problem as an importance problem, I hope that you think, oh, I now understand why it's important. I now see where people fit into climate change. And it helps you as a physical scientist or as a person making policy to think about the relationships between different kinds of data and different kinds of questioning. Well, that was a really amazing whirlwind of climate risks. And that was just a small taste of all of the topics that we cover in the National Climate Assessment. I really enjoyed hearing from these brilliant interdisciplinary experts, each one with a different angle on why we care about climate change. We started with some basic needs, things like impacts on food and water and shelter, how climate change affects our agricultural systems and our built environment, our homes and schools and cities and roads. We heard from experts on how climate change is affecting our health and our wallets and how those health and economic impacts are really important when we're thinking about policies and institutions. And we ended by talking about social systems and justice and how all of these things come together. As Adrian said, connecting people and policy and practice. When you read an assessment like this, especially one as big as the National Climate Assessment, you have to break it up into chapters with different writing teams. You have to silo these topics somewhat. But I think what this episode really drove home for me was just how interconnected all of these topics are, how they really fit together, and how in real life, of course, these things aren't separated into chapters. We are experiencing a whole range of climate impacts that cascade through all of these sectors to affect people and put the things we value most at risk. Thank you for listening. And whatever it is that you value most, the people you love, the places you call home, the things you like to do, thank you for being a part of the climate solution. The NCA5 Companion Podcast was produced by the U.S. Global Change Research Program. These podcasts are intended to provide context and perspectives from the authors and participants of NCA5. They do not represent official positions of the United States government. Production by Chris Avery and Allison Crimmins, who also served as host. Editing, mixing, and scoring by Mallory Hinks. Thank you to our guests, Virginia Jin, Emily Elias, Eric Chu, Casey Ernst, Julie Maldonado, Simon Greenhill, Ariella Zeikerman, and Adrian Hollis. Thanks also to Elisa Lustig, Aaron Grade, Lori Howell, and Mike Cooperberg for their support in developing this series. The NCA is the U.S. government's premier report on climate change impacts, risks, and adaptation across the nation. It is a congressionally mandated interagency effort that brings together hundreds of experts from federal, state, and local governments, as well as the academic, nonprofit, and private sectors. Information about the NCA5, including the process used to create the assessment, can be found on the NCA5 website, at nca2023.globalchange.gov.